Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Thank you, babe. Love that. You could keep playing the whole time. I wouldn't care. It sounds good. See, they agree. I am so honored to be up here leading worship with my wife and my daughter. And believe it or not, that is a miracle in of itself. Because when I was young, I, my parents wanted us to start a family band. And that was my worst nightmare. Probably because they were singing southern gospel music. And I can't stand southern gospel music or country music or anything with a twang. So, like, you get the steel guitars going. I'm like, nope, peace. I'm out. I'm out. But uh, just to, you know, like the same kind of music and be able to do this with my family is just such an honor. Um, for those of you that don't know, I'm Pastor Joey, and uh, we are in week two of our series, Jesus. And uh, we are going through this series really um, through the Lent season. It's the 40 days leading up to Easter. And so we're just highlighting Jesus' impact in the world because if you didn't know, he is the single most important figure in all of history. He's made the biggest impact in any singular historical figure in all of history. And so we uh, are looking at his impact and how that relates to us and how we can continue to partner with him. And last week we talked about Jesus being our purpose. He's what gives life meaning. He restored the meaning of life and purpose showing us that we're all made in the image of God, but along the way, that image was fractured when sin entered into the picture, and it fractured our ability to glorify God because we no longer had relationship with God. And so that, that, that image, that, that anointing on humanity to bring the world to life, to be fruitful and to multiply, to bring God's glory from sea to shining sea across the globe, we, we were stifled in that ability because of the sin that was unleashed when we chose to sin against the Lord. And it sent mankind on a whirlwind journey from that moment to try to find meaning, to try to find purpose. And we've been searching in every direction, in every which way, through different uh, gods, through different experiences, through different endeavors, different um, adventures, and even the greatest philosophers and thinkers today, they still don't have that objective standard of what brings your life meaning. If you do any kind of research, you'll find everyone has a different kind of opinion on how you find purpose for your life. There's no, there's no real way to determine if you have meaning, if your life has purpose. But Jesus came along, and he restored our understanding of what the meaning of life is. And so we can rediscover our true purpose in him, meaning a meaning, true meaning that heals our soul, and a purpose that will guide us the rest of our lives into what Jesus said he came to give, a rich and satisfying life. He says, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. Somebody say abundantly. Don't you want to be living abundantly? I'd like some abundantly in my life, you know. And, uh, and it's not found in the world, but it is found in Christ. 
you, you know, we, we, we say this all the time. It becomes like this figure of speech that it's better to give than to receive. Guess where that came from? Jesus. Right? This whole world wants us to get, 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 receive, 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 receive. You know, do all you can to, to gain as much as you can so, so that you can be top dog in your financial portfolio than you're the next person. And we have all these people. These, do you ever, does it like make you wonder how all these celebrities who have all the fame and fortune they could ever want are some of the most broken people on the planet. Their lives are a mess. They're not happy. And a lot of them die from drug overdoses. Why? Because they're so fulfilled? No, they're searching for something that they can't find. Yet Jesus provided another way. This same purpose and meaning has impacted millions over 2,000 years where now there are billions of people that have walked the earth that were willing to die for this one man because of what Jesus has done for us, because of what they discovered in Christ. They discovered the ultimate purpose to me, for me, to live is Christ. And to die is even better because then I get to be with Christ. As long as I live, I get to live for him, which is awesome. But when I die, I get to be with him. So we were created, the meaning that God embedded in our creation is for us to live a life of worship, of devotion to God, and in it we find the purpose and meaning for life, and we are, can be fully satisfied. The Holy Spirit brings us those glimpses of glory, the glimpses of glory as we follow Him. Such an awesome thing. So today we're going to shift our focus a little bit, build on that idea, and we're going to talk about Jesus being our equalizer. Somebody say our equalizer. Doesn't that sound like, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie? Our equalizer. You know, you know, it's like there are explosions and stuff going off. You know, Arnold would be a good guy to play Christ in a movie because his favorite tagline is, I'll be back, right? And Jesus is coming back one day. Amen? And I, I think Jesus could take Arnold. That's my opinion. Even in his prime. Oh, man what it's going to be like when he comes back. But Jesus being our equalizer is not about blowing stuff up. It's about the way he restored meaning of life, the meaning of life, restored purpose, and with that comes a restoration of the intrinsic value of every human being. So now that life has meaning, and that we have a glorious and divine purpose, Jesus has now revealed the intrinsic value of every human being. Why? Because we're all made in the image of God. That's why we say every week, we believe everyone matters to God. If they didn't, Jesus would have never come. Right? So Jesus reveals this truth. Um, I shared this story before uh, a few years ago, but it bears repeating today. This is an experience that has made a profound impact on my life. So I, something uh, that I went through when I was uh, in high school. Now, I know it may be a shock. I just want to be really honest. But I wasn't the coolest guy growing up. Now, I know you're like, Pastor Joey, this is church. You know, don't be lying. Don't, don't be fooling. But, you know, I was missing a few fries in my Happy Meal. You know, a couple slices of, you know, out of my loaf of bread, you know. 
I, I wasn't the coolest cat. I thought about bringing some pictures, but I didn't want to scar anybody for life. But uh, I, I, I really wasn't. I was picked on a lot. I, I was kind of lonely. I was isolated and felt ostracized. I felt an outcast, even at church. Like, my parents were on staff, and so usually, like, when, when your parents are in the ministry, you're, like, one of the cool kids by default because your parents are, like, on staff. I wasn't. I, w- I was actually the kid that the parents had to make their kids invite to, tr- to their birthday parties. Like, like, you're inviting him. Oh, Mom, come on. You're doing it because I said so. You know, like, like that was me. I, I was the, the tag-along um, when I was growing up. And so I just felt really ostracized. But as I began to uh, get older, around my junior year of high school, that began to change as I gained a little bit more confidence. I started, you know, working out a little bit. And I had been playing guitar for a while and started playing in different bands. And, and so I was gaining some confidence. And finally, I was leading worship at uh, the youth group that uh, I was attending when I was growing up. So that gave me some credibility. I, I now got to be in the inner circle because I was now one of the leaders. And... Uh, one day, we, we went on a youth out, um, outing, and I can't remember where we went, but I remember that there was this kid that showed up for the first time. His name was Jimmy. And I thought, I was weird. Like, I looked back, and I thought I was weird. This kid was, he's a little off. You know, nowadays we call him touched, right? He was like, he had a little something extra. And he was just weird. And the thing was, is he latched on to me. Now, like, I was used to being a loner, like, just going where I wanted, not depending on anybody, because, you know, that was just me. I, I just wanted to be free. I would hang out a little bit and then go off on my own. That's kind of how I was. And he latched onto me, and he followed me everywhere, even into the bathroom. And he wouldn't stop talking to me. Uh, like, I, I'm a little socially awkward. It's sometimes hard for me to carry on a conversation unless it's something I, I really know or am passionate about. Um, but this kid, he just kept talking and talking and talking. I'm like, what is with this kid, you know? And all he wanted to talk to me about was guitars because I played guitar and he played guitar. And so he just wanted, he even had a guitar magazine with him and he wanted to go through every one of those pages and, and talk about guitars. And I'm like, how do I get rid of this dude? Like, I just, I, he's suffocating me. I just want to get rid of this kid. I can't, you know, I can't believe that he's following me around. And so I devised this plan to, to like, you know, it's like, hey, what's that over there, you know, and, and get away. And I finally, I got away from him, and then I avoided him the rest of the night. And then uh, a couple, uh, you know, months go by, and he comes to a couple other youth events, and, uh, and I see him, but I don't really connect with him, don't really talk to him. I, I see him in the hallway, I went the other way, because he just creeped me out. I just didn't like that feeling. He was awkward to be around. And, um, and then uh, a couple, maybe a year or so went by and hadn't seen him until at our senior year, we, uh, as a church, we went to stay at a local Christian college for college days. It's where you stay on campus and you attend some of the classes, and that's one of their recruiting mechanisms to get kids to come to the school. And so we decide, we, we go for college days, and he joins us on that trip. I haven't seen him in, in a year. But Jimmy didn't look like Jimmy. Like, when I first met him, he was a little taller than me, but he was incredibly overweight, and he had, like, a crew-cut buzz cut, if you, if you can think about, like, I mean, if, if I would have named him, I would have named him Butch, not, not Jimmy. That's what he looked like. But this time around, he was skinny as a rail, and his hair was long and stringy, and he had 
big, baggy, dark clothes on, and he was stoned. And what we found out, I was really close to my youth pastor, what we found out is that Jimmy had joined his brother's heavy metal band and had gotten into drugs and got into the wrong crowd. And we couldn't have talked to him that night because he wasn't awake enough to really have a conversation. He was there, but he wasn't there. When that weekend was over, um, he left, and I never saw him again. Because a couple months later, my youth pastor got a phone call from his mom. He had been getting high in his garage. He passed out into some water and drowned. And that news rocked me because instantly I began to think of how I treated Jimmy. And how his drug use and his depression was really, depression drove the drug use and it was probably due to all the rejection that he felt. The same rejection I felt. And maybe the way other people thought about him was the way people thought about me, and that's why they treated me the way I was treated. And yet, I was, I was now arrived, and so I was too cool to put myself in his shoes and have some compassion. And that night, I remember just being broken and thinking, man, if... Maybe if I just had had a conversation about guitars. Maybe if I made this guy feel like he belonged the same way I wanted to feel, maybe he'd still be walking around because he knew his life was meaningful and that he had a purpose. Love it in... When I look at our world today, I think we're still fighting the same old battles. We're still battling the pride that makes us pull away and reject people that are maybe a little awkward to be around or maybe a little make us uncomfortable. And we battle being rejected from others that pull away from us. You know, we're struggling through a socially divided climate that's fueled by our social media now more than ever. That's created factions that turn everyone that's not in part of your group or your community or your inner circle into the enemy, ultimately. Jonathan Haidt, in his article, The Dark Psychology of Social Networks, states, Citizens are now more connected to one another on platforms that have been designed to make outrage contagious. Our social media is not doing anything to connect us. It's doing everything to divide us. And it's fueling division. And we're not simply divided but it's making us really hate one another, turning the other groups into the enemy. Uh, we, and we've always wrestled with this. This isn't something that's new. Um, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul the Apostle gives us a glimpse of what it's going to be like commonplace in the last days before Jesus returns. And I think we're getting extremely close to that glorious day. Uh, like trumpets could sound at any time. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, here's what... Paul tells Timothy about what it's going to be like in the last days. He says, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, there'll be very difficult times. People will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, 
disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. They'll slander others and have no self-control. They'll be cruel and hate what is good. They'll betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. If we had to describe our culture today in a single paragraph, I think Paul takes the cake. This is just a sign of the end times. This doesn't mean that it's going to happen tomorrow. This is just a sign what it's going to be like. It's the stage in which Jesus is going to return before he makes all things new again. But this is the way we've always been. It's just now increasing in our modern day. There have always been factions, especially from the time of the Tower of Babel when God separated the people into different tribes and languages in his, history's past. Man was united in the rebellion against God, and so God separated the languages, divided the people to slow down and to halt the work that they were doing. And since then, people have fought over culture. They've warred over lands. They've warred over wealth. They've warred over power. They've warred over influence. They've warred over fame since the beginning of time. It's the way we've always been. Why? Sin. Sin. But this is never the way God intended for his people, even though we get swept up into the culture. God intended humanity to value each other and to live in a way that benefits each other for the common good. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. I love it when the Bible declares this. Why? Because there is no one higher than God. Yahweh is supreme. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords yesterday, today, and forever. There's no higher ultimate than Jesus. He says that he is the great God, the mighty and awesome God. In case you forgot who the King of kings and Lord of lords is, he's the great one. He's the awesome one who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. God doesn't treat people differently. Because he sees everyone the same, with the same value, the same worth, and the same purpose. He doesn't treat people differently based on any criteria or social construct or standard. And this is how he desired his people to live. In Deuteronomy 16, 19, he tells his people, you must never twist justice or show partiality. God's desire is that his people would be holy as he is holy, that we would walk in this life just like him. It says, never accept a bribe, for bribes blind the eyes of the wise and corrupt the decisions of the godly. For in, order, in order for God's people to be like him, we must live like him in the world. And as we live like him, his glory can be revealed in the world. But what history does is it tells us a different tale. The darkness of men's heart have turned us away from the Lord. We all went our own way, and much partiality has been sown in the world. Between the rich and the poor, different skin colors, different nationalities, different biological genetics. The reason why we have anti-discrimination laws on the books is not because humans are essentially good. It's because we're essentially evil. There's a darkness that lurks in the heart of men. Our hearts are filled with pride, which leads to hatred and discrimination. But when Jesus came, he showed us a different way to think, a different way to live, and a different way to love. And it was absolutely revolutionary. 
when the people um, in his day and the, the region where he lived, when they would discriminate based on social or even legal or religious boundaries, Jesus would cross the line for love. There are two very powerful stories that illustrate this in Christ that I think are, are game changers for the child of God. The first is the story of the leper that approached Jesus to be healed. In that culture, that day and time, the lepers couldn't enter the city. They had to maintain distance. Anytime anyone came near, their responsibility in their society was to say, unclean, unclean. They were to declare they were unclean so that people could avoid them without accidentally coming in contact with them. They were ostracized so that they could protect everyone else. This man knew Jesus was coming to town, and he heard of Jesus' power to heal, and so he thought, this is my opportunity. And so he approaches the Lord, and he says, God, if you will, if, if you're willing, would you please heal me? All of his disciples are freaking out. They're, they're like, this man's unclean. Everyone that saw this man thought, you're too close. You shouldn't even be here. But Jesus looks at the man and says, I'm willing, and he touches him. Jesus reaches for the man, and he heals him. And then he tells him to go see the priest, have him confirm your healing. What's he doing? He's saying, go show everybody else you're just as valuable that you matter to. Such a powerful story. The other, I think, is brilliant as the woman caught in adultery. She's brought in her shame before Jesus, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are trying to trap him, and they're declaring the law. The law says she needs to die for her sin. What are you going to do about it, Rabbi? What are you going to say? What, what is your order? And in his brilliance, in his wisdom, he writes in the sand and then he says, the one without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. He was the only one that fit that criteria. It's so brilliant because probably he knew already some of them set her up or were involved, which is how she got caught. Right? You got to be looking for an adultery in progress somehow to find it. She might not even have been having an adultery at that point. They probably just grabbed her from the crowd. But yet, he calls out, those without sin cast the first stone. Regardless of why she was there, the same sin that caused her indiscretions was the very same sin that filled the hearts of those religious leaders. And I can only imagine what Jesus is writing in the sand. It doesn't tell us, but maybe he starts writing out everything they're guilty of. Maybe he starts with words of knowledge calling out their sin, which is why they drop the stones and walk away. And then he does something so amazing. He gets down on the woman's level, which was unheard of for any man in this culture. Not only a woman but an adulterous woman and probably an indecent woman. Probably not dressed appropriately in this moment in her shame. He gets down on her level 
looks her in the eye and says, woman, where are your accusers? She's like, I don't know. And he's like, well, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And what he shows us in this picture by picking her up and giving her a second chance with his love and grace is that she wasn't more worthy of death because she was a woman. They were just as worthy because of the sin they harbored. There's no partiality. Sin is sin. They harbored hate in their hearts, which is just as worthy of death as any sin that she committed. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he's talking to the church, here's what he tells believers in 1 John 3.15. He says, anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a what? A murderer at heart. One of the things that Jesus brought that was revolutionary was not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And the holiness of God supersedes anything we could accomplish in our flesh, which is why he said it's not just sin to commit adultery. If you look at somebody with lustful intent, it's committing adultery in your heart already before God. Every time Jesus interjects a command or a principle, it ups the ante to show us that God's holiness is so far and above anything we can accomplish on our own. But here John, he mirrors that principle. He's saying if you hate somebody, you've already killed them in your heart. And you know what murderers don't have is eternal life within them. Somebody needs to soak in that for a minute. I don't know who you are. If you hate somebody, you don't have eternal life within you. You've murdered them in your heart. Jesus showed us that the only way to treat an enemy is to love them. Pray for them. The golden rule is to do to others what we want them to do to us. And that doesn't just apply to those that we like or who like us, but also to those who hate us and despise us. That's why he revolutionized the world. It's a different way to think. So his acceptance of anyone, regardless of who they were or where they came from, their biological sex, revolutionized the way people valued others in his life and in his circle. It was so life-changing and cultural transforming that as the gospel began to spread, as the disciples began to take this message to nations, in a world separated by nations, tribes, and tongues, in a world separated by economic status, a knowledge and experience, he brought everyone together in one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. He equalized the playing field between the world, and he brought us all to drink of one spirit. In Galatians 3, 27 through 29, it says, all who have been united in Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. You stepped out of yourself, out of your nakedness and shame when you came to Christ and you put him on like a new wardrobe. You're now in Christ. You wear him over your, yourself. You are now covered in the life and presence of the Lord. Verse 28, he says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are all what? One in Christ Jesus. This isn't the exhaustive list, but Paul could easily say, 
take any category you want to give yourself and delete it. Get rid of it. Because that doesn't matter. What matters is Christ. You're a Jew, okay. You, you think because you're genetically connected to Abraham that means something? No. You're no different than the Gentiles. What, you're a man? You think that makes you superior? No, you're no different than a woman. You, you, you think because you own slaves that you're better than the slaves that you own? No, you're no better. Slaves, you think that there's something special about you because of your condition? No, you're no different. You're no better. You're not less valuable. The equalization has come because we are all now united in Christ. And he says, now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You're his heirs. God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. What's he saying? He's saying that all the things your previous labels promised you are nothing compared to the promise you have in Christ. So cling to Christ. Cling to Christ. He's what brings meaning to your life. He's what brings purpose to your life. Everything else will fail you. Drop those labels and cling to Christ. And so if we look at Jesus' impact in the world, what really is uniting the world and has the power to overcome every socioeconomic barrier that divides us is the only faith that has the power to unite us, a faith in Christ Jesus, in his power and in his love. And the way that Jesus unites us really unites us in two ways. Number one, we all discover we're suffering from the same condition. If you don't realize that you are sick, you're not going to seek the medicine to help you get well. And the reason why many people look at others with disdain or think they're better or think that some group is, is less, you know, whatever than another group is because they don't realize that the same sickness they're pointing at is the same sickness that's in their heart. What is that sickness? Romans 3.10. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23. For everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. There is a standard. It is the perfection and holiness and glory of God. And not a person on the planet rises to the occasion. We all have the same condition. We are all sinners. We are all wrestling with this brokenness that was brought into the world many, many years ago. We all have a sin problem, which means we all have a spiritual brokenness that manifests itself in different ways and at different times and in different ways. And that brokenness is what's cut us off from the relationship with God, and it comes against our ability to perfect God's will and plan for our lives and bring the world to life to reveal His glory. And just as the Jews trusted in their DNA and the law, others trust in the gods of their own countries, the strength of their own might, the strength of their military. There are many things we trust in, but nothing has the power to make us right with God, because if it did, we would have already gotten there. Nothing is good enough to overcome our sin problem. So we may look and sound different. We may come from different parts of the world. But we all have the same rooted problem. It's the problem of sin. So not only do we have the same condition, number two, we all come to Christ the same way. We have the same condition, but we all come to Christ the same way. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for it. 
It's a gift from God. Salvation's not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. You did nothing to earn God's salvation. You didn't do anything to get it. You're not doing anything to keep it. It's by grace and grace alone, through faith and faith alone. That there's nothing you can do. So, oh man, I messed up again. Now I got to go get resaved. No. God's grace isn't fragile. You're, you're not going to lose your salvation because you made a mistake. That's where grace comes in. But you don't get it by doing good because there's no one righteous. So when we look through the lens of the gospel, when we look at the le- through people through the lens of Jesus Christ and his love, the only thing that makes us right with God was the fact we placed our faith and trust in him. That's it. I don't care what family you were born in or what part of the world you come from, what your skin color is, nothing makes you right with God but Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how rich or how poor or how educated or uneducated doesn't matter what anything that the world uses to divide us. We are all united in Christ. And when we see how even drowning in our own sinful nature, this, this floors me. How many people do you know in the midst of someone betraying them or hurting them to the depth of their soul would then turn around and do a sacrificially loving act? But that's what God did. It says that God loved us and he showed us his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were messed up, while we were broken, while we were in rebellion, while we were still turning away from God, while we're still trying to figure it out our own way and say, God, forget you. While we're saying, I don't even believe in God. I'm going to live my own life as I'm the God of my own life. Jesus still came. He still gave his life. He still shed his blood. He still let his body be broken, even for those that would spit on him and accuse him and ridicule him, and even for those that would never believe in him ever in their lives. He came to show his great love by giving himself. He endured the cross, not just for the world, but for us, for me. On my behalf, when we begin to see how valuable our lives are to Christ, how valuable our lives really are. And what God did for me personally, it doesn't just help us love God more. But we wake up to the reality that he did that for every other person we see. We wake up to the value of people in a profound way. See, beloved, God doesn't ask us to die for the world. But he does ask us to die to ourselves. Jesus died for the world. But he asks us to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. And to simply love the people we come across in the world. Romans 12, 16, right after Paul says, Give your bodies as a living sacrifice. Don't 
copy the behavior and custom of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He sets this chapter up by saying, look, we, we think differently, we live differently, we act differently, and here's one of the ways we do it. Romans 12, 16 says, live in harmony with each other. How many of your last five Facebook posts violate that? Especially during election season. Can I get an amen? Right? Live in harmony with each other. Peacemakers. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? The peacemakers will inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers. Right? Live in harmony with each other. And don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. You ain't smart enough. You ain't too smart. You ain't too cool. You, you, you don't have all the chips in your bag. You don't have all the fries in your Happy Meal. You're a few fries short, just like I am. There are too many amens on that one. Just saying. What does it mean, ordinary people? He's saying, don't be too proud to hang out with ordinary people. That can also be translated with the least of these. And didn't Jesus say, in the end, when he separates the righteous from the unrighteous, the sheep and the goats, those he ushers into glory, he said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you gave me clothes. I was a prisoner and you came to visit me. And they're like, well, Master, when, when did we do this? When did we see you naked? When did we come to visit you? And when did we feed you? Like, I don't, I don't remember seeing you walking around. Like, when was this? And he says, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You did it to me. You see, the least of these are a special place in God's heart. And what Paul is telling us is don't think you're too good to love someone that makes you feel uncomfortable. Don't think you're a special category that's above anyone else. Why? Well, it's because Jesus loves them. He died for them. And he wants them to experience the same life-changing love that you did when you believed. He wants them to find out they matter. They're not a hopeless wreck. They're not a hopeless mess. That there's significance in their life. There's a purpose they haven't discovered. There's meaning in their life. You know, there are some people that I've really struggled to be around. And if I'm honest, I've just been turned off by the thought of their behavior. And I find myself making comments and Faces and anytime the subject comes up, just there's this disgruntled nature that begins to rise up in conversation, and God really began to speak to my heart that these people are still made in the image of God. And so they may conduct themselves in a way I don't like, even in a way I believe God doesn't like. But yet, while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. He loves us even in our mess. And God began to speak to my heart about not casting judgment, not throwing shade, not making a joke, 
in spite of what I see on the outside, to love the heart of the person so that I could maybe, through stepping out of myself, could allow the Holy Spirit in me to reach the area of brokenness in them and watch God do something miraculous. So I started praying for God to help me look past what made me uncomfortable so his light and his love could shine through me. And now I, I feel like I can. There's been a shift in my heart. I feel like I can engage people in this community, treat them with compassion without any major discomfort. I told my wife the other day, there's one guy in particular that I'm, I'm ministering to, I, I see off and on, and I said, you know, I probably could probably sit across the table at dinner and have a conversation with him just like he's one of my friends. God is doing a work in my heart, making connections with people, and I praise God for that because I know this is how God is going to use me to reach him. You can't reach who you don't love. You can't reach who you don't love. And this is what we get from Jesus, and this is why Jesus brought so much change into the world. See, my problem with Jimmy is that I was only thinking about myself and how I felt, how being around him made me feel. It was just pride all over the place. But I tell you that if I knew then what I knew now, I do a lot of things differently. I would go out of my way to make that, feel, that kid feel included and loved. Because his life did have meaning. He had a purpose that the enemy was able to snuff out because the people around him, meaning me, who supposedly knew the truth and the love of God were too stuck on themselves, too busy, and too proud to enjoy his company. And because of that, I didn't see what God saw because I was unwilling to look. That's all it was. And beloved, this shouldn't be known of the church of Jesus Christ. In James chapter 2, James, the brother of Jesus, goes to great lengths to talk about this singular issue. This is, this, if Christ unites us all, it doesn't matter where you come from or what you struggle with or what you're going through, Christ unites us all, then to have partiality in the body of Christ is an abomination to the Lord. Here he says, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith I love how real this is. He's like, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes, and you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or I'll sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? And I, I see this in church culture, especially in our country, as churches have become bigger, they become flashier, it's more about uh, the trends, and you know, you have all the worship team, they're decked out to the nine, and they got skinny jeans and ugly hairstyles and, and all this stuff, and you're not cool unless you have tattoos and a nose piercing and all this stuff in our culture today. That began to be on the rise when I was growing up. And, and you have all the latest and greatest. And it, you can tell who's on the in crowd in a church by often how they dress. We may not do it verbally, but we do it with our actions. 
We're in this group. That's okay. You can be over here. We want you here, but we're over here. I mean, I might have been losing my mind, but I, I think he just said, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? The more you struggle, the more you've got to believe for. Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he's promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Like these people you're trying to impress, they'll be the first ones to turn on you. They got a bunch of money, try borrowing money from them. But I guarantee you the poor person would give you the shirt off their back. Aren't they the ones that slander Jesus Christ whose name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who's broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. If you murder someone but don't commit adultery, you've still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, he's saying don't think your sin's better than someone else's. Don't think that what, what you struggle with is, is not as bad as someone else's. I don't care if you just struggle with, with petty theft. You're just as guilty as the child molester in prison before a just and holy God. There, there's nothing about you that makes you better than anyone else. Why? Because there is none righteous, no, not one. And if you favor some people over, over others, you are committing Sin. Verse 12, he says, so whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Jesus said that we are to forgive 70 times 7. Why? Because that's how God forgives us. And if we're unwilling to extend to someone else what God has given to us, why should God extend it to us? What's the point James is hammering? He says, your actions reveal your hearts. Right after this is where he says, faith without works is dead. Don't tell me you have faith. Show me. It's in the context of favoritism. It's the context of partiality. Show me by how you love other people that you really have faith. Don't say you believe. Show me by the love you have for one another. He's hammering this point. Why? It's because the same thing we say every week. Everyone matters to God. Everyone. Those you like, those you don't. Those who are comfortable to be around, those who give you the creeps. Everyone matters to God. And in the gathering of worship, the place where God's presence is supposed to be found, everyone should feel like they matter.
know, for those who call VLC home, this should be something that drives us. We believe that we want to be a church that's driven by love. Everyone that comes through the door, whether we've known them for years or we're meeting them for the first time, should know they matter to God. We should make it a point to go out of our way to show every guest in this house that they matter. Well, how do we do that, Pastor Joey? We don't stay in this crowd. We walk over here. Say, why don't you come? Be a part of this crowd. Oh, you're sitting by yourself? Oh, I've not sat in that seat before. Let's check out how comfortable that seat is. Or why don't you come sit with me? Or what are you doing after church today? Are you hungry? You like food? Well, let's go eat some food. Let's get to know each other. Let's show them that they were seen by somebody. That it matters that they showed up. Oh, well, they got the green bag at the Connection Center. Okay, that conversation probably lasted 45 seconds. But you could be the impact that changes their eternal destiny. The studies show that people are more impacted by the last 10 minutes of their experience than the first, which means your conversations after church mean matter more to people than the ones that happened before. Beloved, we need to remember how we felt when we were new. When you walked into the door the first time, what did you want to see? How did you want to experience? What did you want to feel? And then take it upon ourselves to love others enough to help them feel that way. See, this is the kind of love that Jesus brought. This is the kind of love that revolutionized the world. Especially in our country, there were two significant events that took place in our history that were driven by this very thing. One was slavery. The slavery came to an end because we fought a bloody war that was driven by the Republican Party. Our country was a one-system party until that moment. The Republicans formed a new party to be the anti-slavery party. And when President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, it sent us into that war, which we ultimately won. And I believe it was a righteous war. But before the Republican Party was the Republican Party, they were formerly known as the Whig Party. And you know who the predominant members of the Whig Party were? Evangelical Protestants. Who believed partiality was a crime against humanity. And then years ago, there was a woman named Susan B. Anthony who just didn't feel right about women being a second-class citizen in the United States of America when all men are created equal. She was a Quaker. Quakers believed everyone mattered to God and all were equal. And she spent her life fighting for women's rights and the right to vote. And she died before, before that right was given but they named the 19th Amendment the Anthony Amendment in her honor because they knew who was responsible for this happening in our nation. is a faithful woman of God who believed that all are equal. You see, Jesus doesn't just change people in church, but he changes people through the church. And he changes nations.
Samuel Moen, or Moyne, professor at University of Yale, he said in his book, Christian Human Rights, he says, and far from teaching us simply about the Christian sector of affiliation with human rights in the 1940s, my sport, a story about this crystallizing moment tells us about the fortunes of the concept as a whole because it turns out to be quite difficult to find non-Christians who were enthused about human rights and more especially their basis in human dignity and in the age. The history of Christian human rights in the 1940s is a large part of the history of human rights discourse generally. Without Christianity, our commitment to the moral equality of human beings is unlikely to have come about. Unlikely. Jesus makes all the difference. And we're still fighting this same fight in the area of, of abortion and the rights of the unborn. Helping people recognize that an unborn baby is still a baby who matters to God. That their life has value, has meaning, has purpose. But beloved, we are the hand of God that he's going to use to bring the equalization to the world. An equalizer is also a musical instrument. It filters out audio frequencies. If you think about music as being a bunch of frequencies all firing together, what separates the frequencies and allows it to go from being noise to being something that you enjoy to the ear that can either boost the frequency or lower them is the audio equalizer. We're talking about Jesus being our equalizer. If you think about it in this way, the way we let God's love shine in joining him in reconciling the world is a way that draws people out of the darkness and into the light. And it's a way that we can bring healing and hope into the world by revealing God's heart. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, when we close, he shows us how God through the church, through Jesus Christ in the church, is bringing a balance, it's bringing an equalization to the world. And the way he does it through each and every one of our lives, he says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and angels, but didn't love others, I would be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. All the work I can do for God, all the things that I can do, it's just noise. It's just noise. I can attend church all, every weekend of my life. I can go into the ministry. I can tell people about Jesus every day. I can wear my Christian t-shirts, put on my bumper stickers. I can read my devotions. I can, I can share the chosen uh, television show on my Facebook page and spread the word. I can do all the things. I, I, can, I can go to the Christian concerts and all the conferences. I can do all the stuff that Christians like to do. I can go to my workplace and, and have a bold stand for Jesus Christ. But he says, if I don't love, if love isn't the motivator of everything I do, it's just noise. It's just noise. Verse 3 says, if I gave everything to the poor and sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love, it would gain me nothing. Life is full of noise. There's so much noise in the world. But what brings balance, what equalizes the playing field, what unites us together is our faith in Jesus Christ. And it's the love of God in us, pouring out of us into other people that makes the difference. 
And beloved, we have so much work to do. With a world that's increasingly being more divided, it's incumbent upon us to be even more loving, to walk in greater faith. If we choose unforgiveness, if we choose to hold on to grudges, to hold on to resentment in our heart towards others, either by the way they've treated us or maybe just because of things that rub us the wrong way, then we're no better than the Pharisees still holding the stones. But Jesus doesn't want us to throw stones. He wants us to put our stones down and help people out of the dirt. So as we're looking at Christ's impact, knowing that Jesus wants to make the same impact in us, with every head bowed and every eye closed, as we begin into a time of response, I just want to ask you a couple of things. Just to wrestle with the Lord in this moment. Are you showing favoritism? Is there partiality in your heart towards a person, a group of people, maybe somebody in this room? Maybe somebody in your life. Who or whom do you need to forgive? And maybe again for the 10,000th time. What prejudices are you harboring in your heart towards other people? And you might say, well, Pastor Joe, I don't think I'm prejudiced at all. I don't have any issues like that in my heart. Okay, well then who in your life makes you feel uncomfortable? Who's the ordinary person in your life that makes you uncomfortable? Who's the person you try to avoid at all costs? Who in this room do you try to avoid? Who are you focused more on what they look like on the outside than the heart that God put them on the inside? Because, beloved, if we're going to be part of the healing that Jesus wants to pour out in the world, it's time. It's time to release the prejudice. It's time to let go of the resentment. It's time to ask God's forgiveness for hating others in our heart and ask God to give us a love for people the way he loves people. A powerful love that transforms lives that begins by transforming ours. Maybe there's someone in the room today that you've been holding a grudge against. Jesus said something very profound. He said, before you offer your offering at the altar, if you know somebody has a problem with you or you have a problem with somebody else, lay your, alt your offering at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come back and offer your sacrifice. Many of us come in day in and day out to the worship gathering with issues in our heart for other people, even in the church. And we offer God this praise while we still are harboring resentment in our hearts. Maybe the thing keeping you distant from God in your personal relationship at home or when you gather for worship is that resentment that's there. And today, God is asking you, will you lay it down? Will you offer forgiveness? Will you break the hold that this pain has had in your life? And you let me do a work in you 
so that through you, I can do a powerful work in the world. So my challenge to you today is we close in prayer and the prayer team comes forward. If there's someone in here that you need to forgive, I encourage you to go to that person and offer them forgiveness. Or if there's somebody that you need to ask for forgiveness, go. Go and ask their forgiveness. Be reconciled. Let's truly love one another in this moment by not just saying we have faith, by showing it by how we live. If there's someone in your life that you need to forgive, come and lay yourself down at the altar and confess that to God and then release them in Jesus' name. And let's, God, let's let God begin doing the healing work that Jesus began 2,000 years ago. And let's let it explode from this place as the equalizer unites us together. Lord God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus' example. I thank you, God, that your grace is oh so amazing. It's more than we deserve. And I thank you, Lord, that you're so patient with us as we learn to follow you each and every day. God, I pray for the one today that is struggling with resentment in their heart. God, I pray that you take their focus off the pain and focus it on the love of Jesus Christ. You said we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And I just speak to you. I say you can do it. You can release them. You can be free. You can stop letting this dominate your life. You can find healing. You can find hope. You can find your identity, not in your pain, but in Jesus Christ today. You can do it. Jesus wants to set you free. He's not going to force you to forgive him. He's not going to force you to let that go, but he's going to invite you to. And he'll be there with you. If that's you here today, I just encourage you to come. Come and be set free. If you've been harboring resentment in your heart towards other groups, I encourage you to come and ask God's forgiveness and ask him to give you a love for that, that group of people and to help you reach them. Lord God, we're here. Holy Spirit, we're we're ready for you to continue the work you started. Move in us. Have your way. If you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can do that today by praying and inviting him into your life. We invite you to come and meet one of our prayer team members down front. They'll be excited to pray with you. Lord, we worship you in this place. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you, and God bless.